This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Justice Antonin Scalia has long championed textualism and has often written in his opinions about interpreting statutes by the writer's words, mostly Congress. He despairs of investigating congressional intent and legislative history as ways to interpret a statute. I assume that's a good introduction to uh, textualism? It's, it's all true. Okay. <laughs> Let me get more specific and start with the definition of textualism that you used in the book. I'll read it. We look for meaning in the government text, ascribe to that text the meaning that has born from its inception, and reject judicial speculation about both the drafter's extra-textually derived purposes and the desirability of the fair reading's anticipated consequences. That's a long description. Well, that's a description both of textualism and of originalism. One can be a textualist, I suppose, without being an originalist. I'm sure one can be a textualist without being an originalist. I mean, one consults the text, but then gives the text uh, a meaning that it did not have when the text was uh, was adopted. But I apply both textualism and originalism. I'm always governed by the text, and I give the text that meaning which uh, the people had when they ratified the Constitution or... The, the meaning that the statute bore when the Congress adopted it. Has writing this book been on your mind for a long time since you've been such a proponent of textualism? No, to tell you the truth, it was only generated after our last book. Mm-hmm. Uh, my last, We worked so well together and saw eye to eye on so many things. He suggested that we might uh, collaborate on this, and uh, I saw it as an opportunity to put in, in one in one place uh, my views on various matters that uh, are scattered through law review articles and speeches and whatnot. This is a compendium of them plus, and and this is probably part of the book that took the most time. Not only do we discuss the principles of textualism and originalism, but we also try to exemplify how to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of the second half of the book, which is a discussion of the, of the canons of interpretation. Let, let's talk a minute about the canons. You have, by my count, 70 of them. Yeah, I mean, you can find more, but... <laughs> Stop at 70? We, we didn't find uh, any more that, that were well-recognized and uh, had any inherent validity. How did you decide what one canon would represent as opposed to what the next one would represent? What, what was your means by which you decided that this rule would constitute a canon and the next rule would constitute one? Oh, well, I mean, the canons are out there. We didn't invent any of them, and they are all separate, although sometimes uh, courts confuse uh, one with another, but uh, they're, they're all out there separately. How should lawyers use this book? Well, uh, uh, lawyers will use it, uh, I suppose, to make the best argument for their case available, especially to a judge who is known to be a textualist. And I would hope that is everybody. <laughs> which, which raises my next question. How do you argue to a judge who is not a textualist? 
And if I can pick one example, your colleague, Justice Breyer. Well, I don't know how you argue to a judge who's not a textualist. I, I suppose you have to figure out what he is. Is, is he a purposivist, in which case you uh, figure out what level of purpose would best suit your case, pick that one and argue that purpose to him. Or if he's a consequentialist, just dwell upon the uh, wonderful uh, consequences if the court comes out your way and the horrible consequences if it comes out the other way. Now, none of that is relevant to me, except to the extent that the horribleness of consequences may shed some light on whether an ambiguous term should be read one way or another. I mean, if reading it one way produces, you know, chaos, of course you don't read it that way. Does it irk you as a textualist to hear a lawyer address the court with a consequentialist point of view? It would have in an earlier age. (laughs) But the fact is that, uh, as the early part of this book describes, since about the middle of the 20th century... Textualism has been so consistently abandoned by academia. The canons haven't been taught in law school because that that has simply not been what uh, what the academics focus on. They focus on purposivism or consequentialism. So no, I can't get mad uh, that lawyers do what they've, alas, been trained to do, and probably what most judges expect them to do. I know we've talked about this before, but maybe we can just hit this point one more time. Law schools should make more of an effort to teach statutory interpretation. I know that you've said that to me once before, and I know I've read that yeah, in some of your writings as well. I believe that. Some law schools have, in, in recent years, instituted courses on, uh, on statutory interpretation. But uh, I think they could do a lot more. I, I don't know any law school course that goes through the canons, for mm-hmm. example. Nor do I know any book where you can find all the canon printed in the last hundred years. I mean, that, that's how much the, the, the technique of textualism has simply been, uh, been lost. Well, this is, to me, seems to be one of the first books that actually have all the canon. You said in your previous book, in Manner of Interpretation, right. that the previous treatise that used the canons was at least a hundred years old. I think that's so. Is that a purpose, another purpose for the book? Are you looking to... Uh... Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's, it's no use telling somebody to be a textualist unless you tell them how to do, do that. The way you do that is, is applying those sensible rules concerning the, uh, the reasonable import of language, which is what the, what the canons represent. And, and most of them are common sense, and they go back millennia. Most of them are in Latin because they've been used for so long. There's a lot of research in this book. In fact, the footnotes were some of the more interesting parts of the book. Let me be crazy. The footnotes were at least as interesting as the rest of the book. Who did all the research? How did you come up with so many references to yeah. century-old texts and not Latin phrases? And- well, you know, Brian Garner is a vacuum cleaner mm-hmm. of information, and uh, a lot of the information uh, is just in his storehouse of of memory or of research. A lot of the cases I could not use my own law clerks uh, for, for this purpose, of course, but Brian has a staff at Law Pros who, who could dig up cases, and he also, since he teaches at the University of Texas, has some student assistants who, who could help in this uh, in this intellectual enterprise. You're right, that took a lot of work. 
digging up the cases isn't enough. Uh, the, the cases have to be screened. I mean, you know, maybe one out of three was was really usable, and then then the case had to be described as concisely as possible, which is which is hard to do. Whose idea was it? Your idea to do the book was it Brian's idea? Brian's. I think it was Brian's. Brian's. Yeah, it's a very good one. Right. Should have been mine. All right. <laughs> was it hard to jump back into doing a whole new book again? Or was this it... book was a lot harder than the last one. It took three and a half years. I don't know how many drafts we went through, an enormous number of drafts. And I'm glad to have it off my back, frankly. It's been uh, something of a burden that has cut in on my tennis and hunting over the last <laughs> three and a half years. Let me just go back to my notes here. Here's, here's another key sentence in the book. Our approach is unapologetically normative prescribing what, in our view, courts ought to do with operative language. Two, two questions from this phrase. First, what is unapologetically normative? Well, I mean, some people don't like to be normative. I mean, let's not be judgmental. Mm-hmm. I mean, this book is judgmental. It, it, it tells the reader what we think the right approach is, not, not what the courts do. Very often, courts do what is wrong. And there are some books that simply want to describe what the courts do. Those books are not usually very helpful uh, unless you're trying to dig out cases for, for an argument. Uh, you know, like corpus juris, they say, you know, the, the rule is X. On the other hand, some courts say the rule is Y. Well, you know, we don't do that. We, we say what, the, what we think the rule uh, ought to be and what the best authorities say that it is. You do lawyers a favor by introducing them to some very interesting Latin phrases. One, one of which, and I'm going to try my Latin here, is called nociter a socius. Nociter a socius is, is how it that. is usually said, I suppose. And it is sad that that is a strange phrase to you because it is one of the most common of the, of the canons. And in connection with our previous book, we, we had uh, Brian and I did a a seminar on the book for a large audience of lawyers. And we asked for a show of hands of how many lawyers knew, I forget what it was, Eustem generis, I think, mm-hmm. that, another canon. How many of them knew what that canon meant? And out of this room of about a thousand lawyers, I think there were only three. And that, I, I found that astounding. You don't need to know the Latin name. It's, uh, it's not important, although some of them are really only known by their Latin name. Yeah. Uh, Eustem generis probably being one. I don't know how you would put that in, into English. I'll have, to, I'll have to look that one up. Nociter literally means that a word is known by its context. Right, so by that, the words that it's associated right. with. Or, you know, it's sometimes said, birds of a feather flock together. Right. So if you use the word nail, you could mean several things, depending on whether the statute talks about tools or talks about fingers yeah. or whatever. I mean, if it's a listing of, you know, uh, fasteners, screws, uh, clips, and nails, it obviously doesn't mean fingernails or about a, uh, another type of fastener. There's a very interesting reference that you have in the book. It jumped out at me, and it had to do with an interesting example that occurred several hundred years ago is when Queen Anne told Christopher Wren about St. Paul's Cathedral that it was awful, artificial, and amusing. Yes. By which she meant awe-inspiring, artistic, and thought-provoking. Yeah. 
It's perhaps apocryphal, but it is a, a, an off-recounted story, and it could have been true because, in fact, that was the the meaning in that age of those words. So this pertains not to textualism but to originalism. You have to know what what the words meant at the time in order to understand what uh, what the Queen was saying. Otherwise, you you you, you would misinterpret. Going on to originalism, let me say something that you wrote in the book. Words mean what they conveyed to reasonable people at the time they were written, with the understanding that general terms may embrace later technological innovations. So let me ask a question. How should a lawyer or judge use the First Amendment to explain something like the Internet? Well, I mean, the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of speech, it obviously at the time didn't guarantee freedom of speech on the radio because there was no radio but that doesn't mean that the general term used would not cover that new technology of course it does so this contradicts the ridiculous charge sometimes made that textualism and originalism does not allow for future imponderables that the, that the writers could not have uh, envisioned at the time. Of course it does. Uh, when the writers use general language, that general language covers uh, new things that come into being. But what originalism insists upon is that the things that were in being at the time, at the time that language was written, shall be treated today the same way they were treated when the language was written. And that's why, for example, an originalist has no trouble, none at all, deciding that the death penalty is not unconstitutional. Because when the Eighth Amendment, the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause, was adopted, nobody thought that he proscribed the death penalty. The death penalty was, was the, the sole penalty for a, a felony. Is it important that lawyers and judges know more American history than they do? Oh, I don't think they have to bring a whole kit bag with them. I'll tell you a little secret. Judges don't have to know anything, <laughs> so long as the lawyers tell it to them. I mean, that's the theory of our system. We listen to the lawyers because they've been living with this case for, for a long, long time, and they presumably know a lot more about it than we do. So I don't have to be a historian, you know, with a full background of knowledge in order to decide a case, so long as the adversaries bring to my attention those historical sources that I ought to consult. One thing about statute writing that occurred to me in reading the book was that it's become increasingly complex and self-referential. It's almost like a Ruth Goldberg process of putting together some of the statutes that Congress passes now. Lobbying firms roll out their benefits for their constituents and then legislators log roll them and they try to get favors for their districts. Are statutes poorly written now? Perhaps they've always been poorly written, but yes, they are poorly written now. I'm, I'm sometimes amazed at how uh, language that is on its face so obviously indeterminate could have been adopted, or how two provisions that are so difficult to reconcile could have been placed in the same statute. That's that's the problem of, of drafting. I don't know how we solve it. I think uh, the Brits do a much better job. They, they, they have bad drafting uh, experts who uh, take care of that task. Of course, it's a lot easier when you have essentially a one-house uh, legislature. Don't have too many fingers in the pie. Yeah, too many fingers in the pie. And uh, when you have two, two houses equally powerful, 
many things get resolved in the conference committee. And at that stage, the uh, uh, the expert drafters are simply not present, and you come out and you come out with whatever whatever you come out with. Does it make your job tougher to see those very complicated statutes come across? Oh, absolutely. I think the major aspect of our job is uh, is not constitutional law. Believe it or not, that's a relatively small portion of what we do. The major portion is resolving disputes in the lower courts over what, what a statute means. And the longer the statute is, the more complex it is, the, the more of those disputes arise. Let me also bring up another point that you had in the book, and I call it the gotcha paragraph. And you said in part of it, your judicial author does not swear that the opinions that he joins or writes in the future will comply with what is written here, whether because of stare decisis, because wisdom comes too late, or because a judge must remain open to persuasion by counsel. Yet the prospect of gotchas for past and future inconsistencies holds no fear. Has anybody said gotcha to you? No, not yet, but the book's, uh, you know, it's, it's out pretty early. I, I'd be surprised if I have been perfectly faithful to everything I say here in the past, and I'd be surprised if I'm successful in being entirely faithful to everything I've said in the future. I will try to be. Nobody's perfect. Who, who is your favorite historian? I guess the historian I most enjoy reading is David McCulloch. He's properly. Well, he's a journalist, so I can I can call he's him. A properly <laughs> classifiable as a historian. He digs out historical facts and recites them in a captivating mm-hmm. fashion. What about the idea that a, a lot of what you say about originalism comes from what historians view what, their perception of what went on back during the Constitutional Convention? What, what about the fact that historians tend to disagree with each other? Does that hinder your perception of it? If you're talking about really old stuff, which is usually the Constitution, the major testimony of what the, what the Constitution was understood to mean by the society is quite simply the laws that were in existence at the time and that continued to be in existence uh, despite the enactment of this new Constitution. Thus, uh, you know, the, the death penalty uh, continued in effect in the federal government and, and in the states uh, despite condemnation in the Eighth Amendment and similar condemnation in state constitutions. There's a a new school of thought out, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but it says that a lot of progressive academics and lawyers are using their own version of textualism in assessing the Constitution. Are you akin to that at all? I I have seen some references to the new textualism. not entirely clear what it means. I'm sure it doesn't mean what I mean. I guess the, the, I think it means. Look, I mean, everybody can 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 present himself as a textualist. Everybody begins with a text, and a lot of opinions say, you know, we begin where we always begin with a text. But then, but then, you know, that's the point of departure for everybody. But then you take off to wherever you want to go into purposivism or into consequentialism. So the fact that somebody refers to himself as a textualist does not carry a lot of weight with me. Does it validate the fact that textualism has a great deal to say to people if some of the younger academics are, are using it? You know, I've been an academic, of course, and, and to be an academic, you've got to write, and it's very good if what you write is true, but it is essential that what you write be new. One should not be surprised that what was the ancient orthodoxy, what we put in the book, is orthodoxy. I mean, it was the way courts behaved for, for, for centuries. 
one should not be described that an academic culture tends to depart from that, to have something novel, some, some new take on it. That's, that's what academics do. How was Brian to write with? Oh, he was a delight. He and I see eye to eye on, on so many things. We are both word nuts. He's a, a snoot. Um, By the way, I, I did manage to read that. Did you read that David, snoot, David Wallace? Yeah. So you, you understand. I understand I really, it, right. He's as snoot as I am, as my father was. I think it's, it's congenital, I really do. You know, we have a footnote in there where, where what, what, what was it about? It was about referring to the mediums of the press or something like that. <laughs> we had a footnote which says that, of course, the proper... The proper term is the media, if you're referring to, uh, unless you're referring to clairvoyance. That's a smart Alex Snoop comment. <laughs> that sounds like something my editor would have said, actually. <laughs> I've spotted two huge nemeses of yours. One is an 1892 case called Holy Trinity Church versus oh, U.S. Oh, my, how I detest that case. And you <laughs> just jump all over this one. Yeah. Well, it, it is the exemplar of, uh, of an approach which says, and the case says this, that sometimes, although the words of a statute are clear, nonetheless, it is contrary to the spirit of the statute which must govern. And that, you know, that, that is the opposite of, of textualism. It, it says, the text be damned, uh, the court is to perceive the spirit of its which which leaves the judges in control of everything. The actual case was, was uh, quite simple and straightforward. Holy Trinity Church on Wall Street. You know, when you see pictures of Wall Street, there's this blackened church. It's Holy Trinity. They had hired a, uh, a new pastor from England, and there was a federal law which uh, prohibited the import of, uh, of anyone to, to work, to do labor in the United States. And the issue was whether this would include a minister. I don't see how it could not possibly, it did, it did not mean simply menial labor because it made exceptions for artists, for dancers, for lecturers, but it didn't make an exception for ministers. Nonetheless, the court said, you know, it's so contrary to the spirit of the statute. That's also the same opinion, by the way, which says that uh, we are a Christian, uh, a Christian nation, you know, which some judges get into trouble sometimes by quoting. So it's a terrible opinion. But courts don't use that very much anymore. It's pretty well been... Well, the last 20 years, but we cited it maybe 20, 25 years ago, that, that recently. And sometimes, uh, you know, the Solicitor General will, will use it now. I don't think he uses it so much anymore. <laughs> but one time in my, in my earlier years on the bench, I, I, asked, I asked the SG, is this the Holy Trinity team or the other team that's up here today? Because <laughs> sometimes they're arguing the text, and where the text is against them, you just invoke Holy Trinity. Sometimes the spirit of the law must govern. No, I, the spirit doesn't govern. It's, it's the letter that governs. The other thing is it's nice to be able to be introduced to such expressions as a viperine interpretation, which I've used that in work once in a while. Yes, that, that, that is not the, that, that is Brian at work. Uh, he, he likes words like that. I, I never heard of Viperine before either. But having seen it, being a snoot, I like it. Let's bring it back into usage. The more words we have, the better. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com 
or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.